Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. Brittany Gale is a luminous soul, one who lives each day and moment in her truth. The longtime photographer has traveled the world, shooting lifestyle, fashion, and consumer brands with the eye of an artist. She was born and raised in suburbia, the daughter of an Indian father who moved to Canada at 18 from Punjab, and a Caucasian mother. Her introduction to photography came from her father, who took photos as a hobby. Brett went to school following her interest in nutrition and eventually moved into global nutrition, spending seven months in Africa. A vibrant career in photography came after when she began posting images on Facebook from her trip abroad. In this conversation, we explore the story of how her parents met and her father's love for Western culture, how she found her way to photography, her journey into global nutrition and food policy and distribution, her observations of the entrepreneurial spirit of the African people during her time there, what ethical capitalism and the free market mean to her, the things she's learned about herself and the world in the last two years, and more. Please enjoy this fascinating, expansive conversation with the brilliant, intrepid, and forthright Britt Gill. Britt Gill. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Welcome excited. to The Craft. I'm excited too. I love the name The Craft too. I used to watch yeah. that movie back in the day. This is this very is, witchy. Yeah. Very witchy. And it has come up a number of times with other female guests who are like, The Craft. The Craft. Oh, I know. <laughs> I light, know. light as a feather, stiff as a board, baby. <laughs> I still need to try that game again. <laughs> I've only tried it once with a group of friends and it didn't work. So. Oh, yeah. I think it worked, but maybe when we were teenagers and 90 pounds. But I'm <laughs> excited to try it again. I've, I was saying the other day I want to bring back the seance. Oh, <laughs> yes. Go full witch. <laughs> Do it. Oh, my gosh. Actually, the, the, the time that we had tried it, we were like, this is probably like four or five years ago. And my friend, a girlfriend of mine, was having a summer solstice dinner. And so that's oh. when we tried it. Oh, my God. After dinner. So no one was. <laughs> Before dinner. <laughs> I was like, that might not work after dinner. Yeah, it's so funny. I It's all the women in my life right now just have some witchy ways about them. Mm. They're just, attra- I'm attracting this crew of magical felines. Yes. It's really nice. Some magical but, beings. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So connecting the dots on how we met, we actually met years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we had met through a friend of mine, also former colleague of mine, who was your boyfriend at the time, Nick. Um, but then we formally met in 2015 when Nike did, um, it was like an all immersive event for FIFA women's and you were the official photographer. Mm-hmm. And then I remember Nick was like, she's going to be there. So you'll finally get to meet her. Yeah. And there you were shooting the events. It was so much fun back mm-hmm. when we had events <laughs> and PR. That was a really, really, really fun project to be a part of and a little bit nerve wracking. My first time working for Nike in a business that big and 
yeah, they just did mm-hmm. such a stellar job, and it was World Cup, and I, I used to play soccer growing up, so it was kind of a dream come true looping yeah. back to that project, and I got to hang with you. Yeah, and great. you know what? Thinking about that event, it was really well executed. Like, if, if I think of any event that I've been to, that's definitely in a top three Vancouver just because of the way it was set up the way it was executed, Mm -hmm. like the photos came a day later for anyone who attended. It was just like clockwork. It was was unreal. And I I moved into that building where they hosted it. It was hosted in in a parking garage and I moved in and I I was floored at thinking how they transformed a parking garage into this epic party with all of our friends. It was it was really rad. It was really, really cool. So let's uh, let's go back in time. Let's go. Okay. Let's go back to young Brit. Tell me more about your parents and your childhood. You grew up in the suburbs. Yes, I did. I grew up in the suburbs um, in in Coquitlam, which is it was kind of close on the border to Port Moody, so close to the ocean and close to the mountains. It was a really beautiful place to grow up. Um, yeah, we pretty much only lived in two houses in, within the same neighborhood, and my dad and mom met in the 70s. Um, little Brit, yeah, just early beginnings in Coquitlam. I did French immersion. Um, it, it was just kind of a simple life. We walked to school every day. It was It was just really amazing. Good friends, good community. Super multicultural, which was my favorite part about it friends from all over the world kind of settled in that in that area and it was yeah just a special special space to be um and yeah my dad specifically came from India and my mom is Canadian with an English background so they met actually in East Van and then moved out to the burbs in mm. the, yeah in the 80s yeah your your dad is from Punjab right mm-hmm. mm. yeah yeah he's mm-hmm. from Punjab and he moved from India when he was 18. Okay. Mm-hmm. So first yeah. generation. First gen. Yeah. What was that like for him to make that transition from there as pretty much a, an adult, having lived most of his life there, and then coming here? It, yeah. When we talk about it, I think it was a culture shock, but maybe in a good way. I think India for him felt pretty conservative, and he went to boarding school, and everything is a bit tight, conservative you have to be well behaved can't say certain words nobody had muscle cars and everyone's super covered up in their bodies and so when he came to this, to Canada in the 70s it was the exact opposite <laughs> as you can imagine free love and um just muscle cars everywhere and classic rock and beautiful women <laughs> and he who were showing their bodies and proud it was just a time of liberation and so i think when we spoke originally when i was younger he said he came for a job <laughs> but then <laughs> he came for the freedom yes <laughs> it came yeah as 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 i become a bit older we realize it's more about like the women and the music and the cars <laughs> and the culture and this yeah I, I think it's really cool that that I've grown older and can have those like conversations with him now to really dig in and what what it was that turned him on about Canada and it's just I think um India's definitely changed a lot it's become more western but Back then, I think he just felt a little bit like homogenized. He was only always hanging out with people from 
his land. And when he came here, he still created this community within the Indian community, but there was this really nice blending of Canadians who'd been here for generations. And so he really appreciated learning mm. new culture. What's he like? He's pretty fun. Um, yeah, loves loves everything kind of American and Western in culture. It's funny. He's a little, like, we love classic rock. He plays really great concerts in his basements on his projector. <laughs> he's just, like, a chill dude. He's kind of... He's kind of the Gandhi kind of Indian. You know, I think there's like a lot of forms and archetypes of what people imagine an Indian man to be. And he's more along the Gandhi side. Mm. Uh, yeah, he's not he's not a businessman. He loves working on cars. He's blue collar. He was a welder and a machinist his whole life. So, yeah, he really kind of lived the Canadian dream, I mm. guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And your mom, what's your mom like? She's amazing, too. Um, she's been in management, managing people her whole life, and is just so great at it. And, um, yeah, her family has been here, I think, in Canada for a few generations now. But, yeah, they're both just such loving people that created a really amazing open Petri dish for me and my sister to kind of do and be whatever we want and yeah, there's just this openness and sharing that we, we've we had with our parents since we were young. And it, our household has been a place for acceptance and love and unconditionally. So we're so lucky. Like our parents have been so instrumental in who we have become today. So, mm. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And your dad, you, you were saying um, when we were catching up the other day that your dad is the one that introduced you to photography. Yeah, yeah. So he always had little hobby cameras around the house, and I just picked them up. I, I always had a little bit of a creative eye whenever I was in school. I, I studied science, but whenever I was in school, I was always doodling. So it was like I needed to engage my right my right brain a lot in order to have my left brain work. And I never thought much of it, and art was just kind of a frivolous activity. You know, we didn't, like, we only did it once, maybe an hour a week or something, and then the core subjects were the majority of what you learned. And so I never really placed any importance or noticed the camera more than just a fun thing I picked up once in a while. But I I got, a, like, a couple rolls of film, and I would just bring them to parties or shoot my friends, and then I did, um, I used his cameras, and I took like photography class in high school and that was my first foray into actually doing the darkroom process mm. and more getting, technical things and learning to understand yeah, that totally yeah but yeah. so it started with yeah just his old hobby cameras nothing special though they weren't collector's items they were just quite inexpensive but he loved um, documenting our family and it wasn't he wasn't necessarily looking at it as artistry it was more about memory collection and so that's kind of what I did when I yeah. when I took his cameras over and now it's shifted into a mm. whole different can of worms yeah. yeah I do remember you mentioning though that he had a pretty good eye yeah yeah he did he just had a good eye and he was always kind of filming our birthdays and we have it's cute he brought out a projector a couple of years ago and we looked at all these old like slide films and yeah it's really cool and videos of him in India, he would he would set up these hunting safari. They would go on hunting safaris, and he would set up and direct these scenes and film his friends in India hunting. And I thought it was just so cool to see that 
yeah, it, maybe there's a little genetic or or just environmental influence totally from him or if it mm. was innate. I don't know, but it definitely was something that was around our house a lot. Mm. And yeah. you, what were you like as a, as a child and mm. a teen? It's a good question. Okay, so as a child, I, I'm a quite social as an adult but as a child we've been looking at videos of like my first my fifth birthday and I'm kind of just on my own the whole time like off in the corner everyone's playing I'll come in I'll dip in and like hang out and then dip out and dip in with the adults I was kind of like a floater and I feel like that's maybe the adult I actually am. I'm social and then I have to retreat and mm. social and retreat. And so in those videos scene, I think it's so important if we, when I have kids, I would love to get them on film because I think those personalities are so ingrained in us about who we are and what our personalities are when we're that age. And like sometimes parents will mold that out of you, but it's so nice to see because I'm now honoring my five-year-old self at a party when I know I have to leave or switch the conversation or switch yeah. the group. But that's how I was. I was I was kind of, my dad and mom always said I was just kind of in my own world, like always off doing my own thing, super independent. I was the boss of the playhouse we had in our backyard, so all the kids would come and I would tell them where to sit and what to do. And so I was kind of directing people a lot and leading in our little mm. community. Um, and then as a teenager... My studies were super important to me. So um, it, being in French immersion, you just always kind of have this magnifying glass on you because it's a family. So you end up working with the same teachers in the same class for many, many years. So you often graduate with the same people you're in kindergarten with. So there's this community. And with that, I think, comes a responsibility to impress upon your community. And so it, it was really great it was really great and encouraged me to do really well because my teachers were like second parents watching yeah, they over. they were invested. Yeah, and right. if they knew I wasn't doing well, it would it would be a let's go talk to the side. Is everything okay with you? And mm. this real personal touch, and you weren't. It wasn't a revolving door, um, mm. which is kind of more like what I felt at university. But in in high school, I just had a really great solid community that really believed in me, and I intellectually was super stimulated and um you know I know the standard education system doesn't work for a lot of people but it was really great for my mind um minus the lack of creativity yeah being expressed I loved learning and, I, and I'm missing that a lot right now actually mm. as I as I as I share but uh, yeah I kind of loved school loved mm. it yeah and yeah, you ended up going to school for global nutrition. Yeah, so um, I guess it was in my, when I was in my late teens, I had a cousin who lost a lot of weight and I um, I just found it really cool that we could be in charge of our bodies and she taught me a lot about the diet she was doing and maybe it was, I don't know, the intentions of me being curious as a teenager if they were the best of intentions but what I was curious about is like I would love to help and assist other people gain control over their bodies and I find it so interesting that we can shift our health that way and so I started just learning on my own about nutrition and then because I loved science in, at high school it just kind of translated into 
being in love with nutrition and the body and biology. And so that's what I applied for when I went to university was to become a dietitian. Mm. Yeah. And then I realized when I went to that program, I didn't actually get in because I, I learned that the practicum was in a hospital, most likely. And I thought, well, this is kind of the antithesis of good, healthy food, <laughs> which is sad because it's a, supposed to be a place for healing, but the hospital has some of the lowest quality food we have. <laughs> mm. And so I just kind of was a bit disheartened by the system and that if I became a dietitian, I would have to work with feeding tubes. And I just wanted more of a salt of the earth experience, more to do with farming and sustainability. So I shifted into a different program, which included more of an interdisciplinary pro approach to nutrition, which includes like politics around food, food policy, food security, and more global distribution of food. And so what I realized is at this point, if people aren't eating healthy, they actually need more of like a psychologist to help them sort out like how they, why they're in neglect with their body. And it just, I felt like I couldn't help people get to that point with the education I was getting in dietetics because I was you would provide a meal plan and help them do calories in, calories out, but it was missing this whole piece around spiritual health. So what, and also right now, I just felt like we have access in Canada, specifically in Vancouver, to good, healthy, sustainable food options and affordable options. And I just felt if you weren't eating healthy with what we have, you need something more than just a meal plan. And, and so I just kind of was a bit disheartened by just sitting with people doing one-on-ones and then I realized I wanted to help people who don't have access to healthy and sustainable food and that's when I looked at like the bigger system behind um, access distribution food security and kind of realized we don't have a food abundance issue we have a distribution issue and we have a lot of politics and bureaucracy behind food security and that, that made me a bit angry. And so I wanted to move more into policy and potentially work with the UN. And so it was, it was almost the same education, so doing biochemistry and nutrition, but with this global lens. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of a long, long story. I, I was super sad about university in the first couple of years and then took a year off. And then... When I came back, I found this program that right. was allowing me to kind of dip my toes into a lot of different disciplines to have a lot bigger zoomed out view on food, mm. food issues. I'm curious, what did you do in the year off? I traveled a lot. Yeah. I, I, every time I took time off, I traveled. Yeah. Mm. So I took two big chunks of time off in university. The first was um, that sabbatical after I was just so stressed out, essentially to do science in university, you're competing with pre-med students too. And yeah, it was hard. Yeah, <laughs> it was oh super hard. Um, yeah, so it, it really took the life out of me. So I had to take a sabbatical and then I went back and then changed the direction to global nutrition. And then after that, got to go on a larger trip to Africa, which that was kind of the TSN turning point for yeah. my life. Yes, that was seven months in Africa. Yeah. And was it Africa, like where in Africa um, were you situated mostly or did you travel between different areas? Yes, we traveled quite a bit. Originally, 
Um, back to the soccer. I loved soccer. I played soccer a lot. My best friend and I played on a team together, and we said we got to go to the next World Cup. And so we realized it was in South Africa, and so we just made a plan to hop on a plane and go. And at the same time, I was my minor the the program that I did at university. You had to choose your your science major so my science major was nutrition and then you had to choose a language and a region and so the language I chose to learn was Spanish and the mm. region I chose to do my minor in was Africa so I did African studies um, and so that's why the interest was there already and so we flew to South Africa to go to World Cup and quit our soccer team to go watch the games and then I convinced my professor and my advisor that I should get credit for this trip. And so I turned it into directed studies, international directed studies. So after World Cup, which was in South Africa, we made our way all the way north to the border of Kenya. So we went to, yeah, every country in between from mm. Cairo to Tanzania. Wow. Or sorry, Cape Town to Tanzania. Yeah, yeah that's so, so amazing. I, I'm curious to know when, when you you landed there and you started to learn about the people and how, how things um, probably operated differently there. What were like some glaring differences that you saw but appreciated um, about the way their society works? Yeah, so many things. I Yeah, it just brings a smile to my face every time I think about that trip. But we were there for seven months and every country that we went to had its own had its own vibe and way of being, but for the most part, what I loved about people in Africa was there is just this energy and this joy. And in those countries, they call it Ubuntu. It's just a vibe you can't feel anywhere else. Like the ground is alive, the people are alive. And that's one thing I, I, I miss a lot when I'm in Vancouver. I think everyone thinks everything's so serious here and there. There's just everyone's boisterous not everyone but it just like there's this camaraderie and connection and joy and strangers will just come up to you and touch you and invite you over for dinner and just a warmth um and then the second big thing is just this entrepreneurial spirit and I notice it a lot in India when I'm there that everyone is hustling to get you something to make a buck to do something and I, and I think that creativity the human ingenuity and creativity that they have to be autonomous and take responsibility for their lives and earn their own money, that was the second biggest thing because I think my my African studies teacher was really helpful in sharing not to be the white savior and go to Africa and try to change things. And so this trip I did was purely observational. But that was the best thing I noticed was like they actually were teaching me way more. I wasn't even coming in with this higher education to change their lives. Essentially, I was just their student. And that those two things were, yeah, life-changing for me. I, I wouldn't, I've never really been anywhere else like Africa. India has its own different qualities, but there's just a spirit in Africa that I hope everyone gets to mm. experience. Yeah, I have heard of the term Ubuntu before, but I can't seem for the life of me to remember the exact definition is it something about being like collectiveness or like some kind of oneness or yeah yeah, yeah something yeah. around that yeah, yeah exactly and and it was funny even at world cup people would it everyone was so happy it was similar to the olympics i felt that similar energy here but 
people would just come up to you and grab your face and be like, can you feel it? And they would just like grab you. Can you feel it? And everyone would just say that. And that was Ubuntu. It was just like this energy. It was this explosion of joy that everyone mm. collectively was feeling. And yeah, I think every country kind of has their own version of it. But yeah, can yeah. you feel it? <laughs> it was mm. so cute. Yeah, we, we were constantly... Yeah, just enamored with people there. It's huh. so lovely. Now I'm so curious, what does Ubuntu feel like in India? Oh my gosh, chaos. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the ca ca India is just full dark and light at every every corner, you know? It's 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 you have the polarity of life everywhere you go there. You have the poorest poor of the poor next to the eight-star hotel. Like everything is about binaries and like showing you showing you the the extreme polarities of a place mm. all at once and so yeah it's it's chaos but it works in such a beautiful way like there's so much beauty and so much color and then yeah it, it's it's crazy I also just like laugh we will just sit in rickshaws and like people would get out fight for like 20 minutes and you just sit in the rickshaw and just watch like a thousand people go by, corns everywhere. No one uses blinkers. They just honk their way through traffic. It's, I'm obsessed with it, but it does spit a lot of people out. Like they can't handle it. Their That's, nervous systems get a little yeah. overwhelmed. I have heard that where people who've been there say it's a love-hate relationship. Yeah. 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 Mm. It is. It's so challenging. And you see a kid who's begging with no arms and, and then the next place you go is like you're getting served high tea for $20 a cup you know it's like it in one day what your experience is so extreme compared to what we see here and you often feel sorry and feel bad and same thing in Africa I felt like people would judge racism a lot when we were there um the way the, the Afrikaans would speak about this group and everyone had their own opinions and my friends would be very judgmental about that. And I said, we haven't lived their experience. You know, we have to be here as observers. We don't know what happened and what happened in the history and we have to come and, and learn that. And so I, whenever I travel, I, I just kind of become a sponge and try to not walk in with judgment. But if you are a reactive person, yeah, India can be very triggering and people yeah. are not, yeah, people are all up in your business all the time yeah. there. They don't, they, they, yeah, they're just, it, but it's such a beautiful culture and yeah, it's, I feel so, I feel so lucky to be from there. It's just a magical, magical, colorful place. Mm, it's yeah. really beautiful. You need to cal calm your nervous system before you go. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've thought of, I've often thought, you know, I'd love to go there. Um, but yes, I, I've heard that that love hate relationship, you know, from my friends that have traveled there. I'm like, would I like it there? I probably would, but would I? Maybe not. You would love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you would love it. Probably because I'm just such a curious person naturally, and I love connecting with people. So I'm sure I would, I would love it. Yeah. I'm um, I'm wondering after seven months in Africa, what? How did it change you? And what did you learn about yourself in your almost year there? Ooh, it's a good question. Uh, the first thing that popped up was that 
it was the first time I'd really felt true freedom where I didn't have anything to do, no agenda except write a journal. So my task for my university was to document my observations. Um, so the biggest thing was actually that my mind loves freedom to a specific point, but then creatively I was almost depressed towards the end because I needed to do something and work and put something out into the world. So. That's the biggest lesson I learned was that too much freedom is actually not not ideal for my personality and that I, in terms of freedom in my day, and that I, I loved a little more structure and I liked to be working on a project. And so that was really a personal personal realization. But I think the biggest thing was that a lot of the larger organizations that I, I idealized and put on a pedestal for many years weren't inspiring to me at all. I think it, there was too much top-down, too many top-down organizations that I didn't really see helping communities. And so it was more the grassroots projects that we observed along the way that really, really changed my mind about what social good could look like. And I think charity was kind of a big deal when I went. So I went in 2010. And so that word was still super hyper popular. And I just, yeah, I just kind of realized that some of the organizations that I love the most were actually tied to private enterprise and they weren't public partnerships. And they were one of the most amazing projects that I loved was this beautiful resort that was on a river in Zambia. And then the resort funded the school and the school nutrition program for the kids in the community. And so most of the parents worked at the resort and it, it was probably $800 to $1,000 a night to stay in these bungalows. Um, there were hippos on the river, like it was an amazing place. And then the money from the lodge went to fund the education for the kids and they had super healthy and sustainable meals. Um, which is such a cornerstone to education. And it was one of the most impressive places I went. And it was such a small, small organization, but it was super grassroots. The people that would come and visit, they were so inspired by their visit to the school, the tourists were, that they ended up donating for years and years after that. And so I just, yeah, one of the, that was the second biggest thing I realized was just that seeing how private, private enterprise is can actually do good and I think mm. I'd forever I'd been brainwashed a bit to think that oh capitalism is horrible and that we have to go through public social programs always to make change and I just kind of realized and I'd also listened to a TED talk at that around that same time that was said like do you want to be the person on the board of directors making a million dollars a year in your own company and donates 80 grand to the charity or do you want to be making 80 grand at the charity and mm. I was like oh I don't want a glass ceiling you know I don't want to slave away I'd, I'd, I'd actually had a, a charity at that time a, a non-profit and I'd just been putting so much work and effort into it and I was so burnt out after that trip that I I realized that private being in the private sector is not so horrible. Mm. I think, yeah, in, in my like liberal schooling, and I definitely just felt that that was, that, yeah, it was always looked down upon. So that was a big realization, visiting that school and just being super inspired at the ingenuity of 
the entrepreneurship of the people that owned it and like how they really paid attention to the the shareholders in that community. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that the term ethical capitalism came up in our conversation the other day. Not that I know um, a whole lot about what that means, but from what I do know, it's like you can do business and you can also give back to the collective um, in in terms of even profit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that it's it's something I talk about a lot. I've had a lot of conversations with people about ethical capitalism because it it does feel like an oxymoron for many. But I kind of I don't know. I kind of believe in the free market still, and I believe voting with our money is the most powerful way to vote. I don't know if top down approaches work for for the market, and so I'm super inspired in exploring it and. One thing that I wanted to bring up, too, is I had an epiphany kind of as I was thinking of that on my way here that a lot of the women in my life that have started businesses in the last decade are so – there's so much ethic and high ethical standards in their company, in their companies. And I I just thought, well, that's really beautiful. Like there's this feminine – and not just because it's – females but this like return to the feminine which we keep talking about kind of like the pendulums swaying the other way using more right brain and more empathy and treating employees fair and it's kind of like we can't avoid ethical capitalism anymore because people are demanding it and I find the companies I know run by females there is a really big high focus on shareholders I mean, I'm stakeholders over shareholders. And it's just really nice because I find that focusing on having a having a hyper focus on the on the relationship with the planet, with your staff, how happy they are, how much they're enjoying their workplace. It's just you're going to do better as a company as a result. And so that that that's been such a cool thing to realize in the mm-hmm. last little while because I had to kind of turn turn my brain around on that one, just thinking like I, I would need to have to go work with an organization for the rest of my life and then seeing that women in business are succeeding and helping their community at the same time. It was a bit of a brain buster, but I'm, I'm super, super excited to see that shift. Yeah, and also having sovereignty. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, sovereignty is my new favorite word these <laughs> days. But yeah, it does feel like a really big deal to to just have that that autonomy and have your own money and your own independence and be outside of a system that's dictating your hours and what you need to do in a day and what you need to wear to work. And most of my girlfriends are all entrepreneurs and it, it, they're forging a new way and it's just really beautiful to see and I think social media has been a really big help for that because the women in my life value beauty and they value community and relationships and it's like almost as if Instagram happened at the same time where most of them are successful because of that platform because of honoring the femininity in their businesses and promoting in that way and so yeah it's been it's been pretty cool but I think yeah, the sovereignty piece is the, is the most important for me to just being being able to have that independence from from that that system. Oh yeah, as yeah. you and I have Amen. chatted, yeah, I I definitely feel that. And and sovereignty was actually my my word in in 2020 when I thought nice. of 
you know, the kind of life that I wanted to leave, le- lead, um, yeah, sovereignty came up very, very naturally. And so, yeah, making those those choices to leave the job and then pursue things that felt really, really aligned for me um, felt really good, obviously. And um, something you said the other day that also resonated with me was you were, you were talking about how when you become an entrepreneur, there's there's less of a ceiling. Mm-hmm. And I totally resonated with that because you you have this ability to make and create abundance mm-hmm. um, without being tied to any particular system or a boss. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super. One thing I noticed a lot is like the big equalizer has been the internet too. So as I think about Africa and Indian and and ways to affect change in countries that we feel are quote unquote less developed, which I, I don't even like to say that it the equalizer is the internet. And so an entrepreneurship also is the equalizer. So no longer can we can we keep these people from earning mm-hmm. and can we control them through yeah government programs and it's really great like I employ people from all around the world on Upwork I don't know if you know about it it's amazing I do mm-hmm. yeah and, and and it's just it's just really cool to have incorporated like a global team to help and support me in my business and I'm empowering them by sending them money it just created a smaller world and I, I think yeah the internet and entrepreneurship set me free like it set me free. And so to think that capitalism is bad, <laughs> back to ethical capitalism, it just like I, I've been really destructing that in my mind, deconstructing that in my mind and trying to actually feel empowered by it. And mm. it offers me sovereignty and it offers me freedom and it offers me finances without a glass ceiling, without a boss, within the time that I want to do it and so Mm -hmm. I want to share that message with people the most and so yeah yeah it's it's it is it's pretty special that we we almost have too many options now (laughs) it was like that might be the only problem Mm. at this point is that people are a bit um stuck with the options that they have because the opportunities are endless right now yeah yeah yeah. and you know to, to talk about um entrepreneurism you know, and, and just acknowledging that it, it may not be for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, some some people, um, yeah, it's just it's just not for them. But for the people who have it in their heart, perhaps to yeah. give it a try, yeah, it's uh, it's doable. And I find that other entrepreneurs are quite supportive. You've got the right yeah. ones around you. Yeah, that's a good that's a good disclaimer too. I I don't think everyone's meant to do it. But one thing I noticed too is as I'm expanding my business and wanting to hire people on, realizing that the employee to the employee employer relationship doesn't really work for me anymore and I want everyone who works with me to feel a lot more empowered and so I, we're mostly hiring other contractors, but if they like to feel more like an employee, that's that's okay. We can create those relationships where they still feel that mm. connection. But I think having, I, I don't think entrepreneurship means that you need to leave your job and be independent from a company, but I think companies need to offer more ownership to employees so that they do feel a little bit of 
an inclusion in in the C-suite and be involved in the larger picture of the company instead instead of cogs in the wheel. So it's like it's more of an entrepreneurial mindset of having yeah, having a place at the table. Right. Yeah. That's yep. kind of what I what I allude to when I say that, but yeah, just the, that employers also look at their staff in that way too. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to segue back into your career in photography. And I know that the inklings of it began in Africa, mm-hmm. right? Because you were starting to take photos of the life out there. And uh, to your point of uh, using the internet, uh, Facebook became a platform where you started sharing your work. Yeah, yeah, that was that was cool timing. I think it was the first couple years that people started sharing <laughs> photos on Facebook. And I wasn't really used to it at the time, but people wanted to know what I was doing in Africa. So my dad bought me a really nice lens for my camera. And so I went, I'd gone on a couple of safaris, which a friend invited me on and so posted pictures of that. And then when I was actually at that project, which I've, which I mentioned earlier, that super inspiring project in Zambia, I photographed a lot of the children and the meal planning and, and I was going to submit it as a part of my project to UBC. And then I shared some of those images of the children on my Facebook and people were floored and messaging me like, these are the most beautiful images I've ever seen. Like these kids are so special and the way you've captured this project. I think because my soul, I I say when, when my soul is seeing something beautiful, that's when I do my best work. Like when I know I'm having a soul connection with a subject or with a place or a thing even, it always resonates with people. And so that's why I try to only shoot now things that are connected to a deeper place. But at that time that was happening, I just didn't have a, I just didn't have the words for it. And so that project, the documentation of that project went on Facebook. Everyone lost their minds. No one asked me anything about the programs I was involved with and how we were, the money we raised or the projects we worked on in Africa. They were just mentioning how the the photos and images moved them and so yeah it was almost like the feedback from that trip the feedback from the photography of that trip was what dictated the next decade Mm. of my life because people were resonating so much with the quality of the imagery and the just the way their images made them feel and so it was really special for me to instigate emotion in in people through the internet (laughs) like that had never happened before Mm. and then I felt like okay no one was doing charity marketing in a powerful way at that point either so I thought if I could move people through imagery then why aren't there better marketing programs for these charities why aren't they using imagery in this powerful way to earn more money abroad so that charity was only earning money from those that were at the resort, but I had this epiphany that I could, you know, launch them into the greater internet and and help them raise more funds. And so that's when I kind of merged both worlds. I merged my education, science, global nutrition with photography and marketing. And so, yeah, when I came home, that's kind of like the beauty of what was birthed after that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it was realizing imagery the power of imagery. Yes. And then yeah. And then the clients started calling. Then the clients started calling. Mm. Yeah, I worked I worked in charity for a while doing marketing. Um and then 
And then, yeah, people just started asking for all kinds of photo shoots that were beyond charity work. So weddings, babies. And I really just didn't say no to anything. I had a nine to five job, but I would do it on the side. And then once I kind of developed a, a clientele, I, I slowly weaned off the nine to five and started my own company. Yeah. And that was about, I think, eight years ago, eight and a half years ago that mm -hmm. I started the Brittany Gill Photography Company. Yes. And you yeah. traveled quite a bit with your work when, when you know, we could travel yeah. freely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So the last few years, I was becoming a travel photographer. That would be the genre that I would announce. And I was selling a lot of my images to big magazines. And then, yeah, COVID hit and it all went out the window. <laughs> um, I still do sell some images here and there. But uh, yeah, it's it kind of all died and so what's good though is I felt like a lot of really cool inspiring people were also stuck in Vancouver so I got to do a lot of amazing partnerships locally here and mm. rekindle with a lot of friends who are usually on the other side of the planet most of my peer group is always traveling and so we were all kind of stuck here and so a lot of really creative projects were born out of that um, working a lot with artisans and cool artists in this community was my favorite part of COVID. But yeah, it, it was qu quite a shame because I'd built my brand to a point where travel was looking like it was going to be the, yeah, the, right. the, the mainstay. The mainstay. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, I feel so much more grounded now mm. being home for this long. I, yeah. I haven't been on a plane in two years and it's like, it feels really nice to stay put in yes. one place yeah. and, and re and challenge why we travel. You know, I, I think there was this never ending loop of travel and, and I usually travel with high intention, but because I was following jobs, I was a little like I was losing that intention again about why I travel. And so reconnecting with that has been really nice. And mm. even if I'm going to places in BC, just yeah, coming in with that observational lens that I had in Africa traveling in that way again instead uh, of just moving through a place quickly yes yeah. i was going to ask so why do you travel but yeah to put on that observational lens ah that's yeah oh that that makes me feel like i need to to think about that as well I'll, and you can I'll do, do that. that in your own yes. city too yeah. just pretend you don't know this place <laughs> that's been a fun game through COVID. totally oh. well actually a, a a friend of mine uh who was in my social bubble for the first year we would um we would every Saturday, take an afternoon and say, let's go to this neighborhood and walk around and see if there's something that we haven't seen before, like Amazing. a new shop or a bakery that maybe we didn't see that's been there forever and just check it out. And it ended up being a really awesome way to rediscover this place I've been in wow. for so long. That's incredible. Yeah, I do that a lot. I think nature is a good way to always be inspired because we live in a city that has really amazing seasons so mm. that I remember through COVID I would just do like four hour nature walks and just like stare at trees and just find more expansion in my city because it always felt a bit claustrophobic it always felt like home but I felt it was claustrophobic for me like I mm. felt it was too small and then now that I'm stuck in this boundary, it feels like there's so much opening up within the boundary and it's infinite what, mm. what you can find. And so it's been a fun game for mm. me to play with. Oh, yeah. We're so lucky here. I have a question about beauty and this this um, popped up as you were talking about something else. But 
you know, as they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. When you're working on a project or when you're shooting things, what what is beautiful to you? Mm, that's a good question. Um, it's very open-ended, and I think it goes back to that soul connection. You know, with my job, with my job, it's interesting because, like, typically I'm working with hired models. So that's one version of, like, cultural beauty that can sometimes trap me a little um, because my client work is the bread and butter. And so I feel sometimes I'm caught in a loop there of, like, what beauty means to the client. Well, what beauty means to me is just having a soul connection with my subject. And for me, it's just an inward feeling of opening and expanding. And and I know, and now that I sell my images, it's funny, I know that those are the ones that people resonate with the most. And it's usually, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's like a flow. It's like, when I'm in flow, unencumbered by client demands and um, a timeline generally, if I'm usually, right now lately, a lot of clients are hiring me to just go on walkabouts and shoot specific things, shoot specific neighborhoods or shoot specific things in nature. And that's when I do my best work, when I'm unencumbered by timelines. And so beauty to me is when I have that connection to my subject without it being manufactured. Mm. Yeah, so I know that sounds super <laughs> ethereal, but it's that's kind that's, of how it is. Like, yeah, that's how you operate. That's how I mm. operate, and it's it, it's really cool now. A lot of my larger clients will just trust me to go off on my own and create, and then send files back. And that's when I do my best work. When, yeah, that to me is beauty because I I'm I'm connecting on a level that's not just human. And I know it sounds so esoteric and woo woo, but it it really is that. And. When I'm traveling, that usually it's hilarious. Sometimes it happens after a margarita. <laughs> like I'll just be, I don't know, just have a happy hour and go on a walk and just find people, places, things. Like Mexico is one of my favorite places to shoot in, in markets. And that's when I've captured probably the most beauty. Mm. And it's really in people interacting. And it's when I let my guard down and I start to interact with people. Specifically when I'm traveling, that's when I really have these these moments of flow and, yeah, capturing the beauty of a place. And, yeah, I have some hilarious pictures that that I've sold many times over because it's, it's the essence of the people in that place at the mm. time. Yeah. That's so, so cool. Yeah. So just a few more questions. Um, I know you're a busy gal, so uh, I'll, I'll keep it to just two or three more. Um, this, the last couple of years, um, what have you learned about yourself and the world in the last few years? Hmm. <laughs> so much. Um, let's start with myself. I've learned that I'd been developing and honing in on a connection to myself over the past 15 years, which is unshakable. <laughs> um, I know my compass. I know my true north. I know my truth. And I'm so in a place of being grounded. Maybe COVID has helped me with that, that I'm super connected to my truth and how important that is to me. And it's it's kind of unshakable at this point. Um and what I, 
And being in that truth has been really hard for the past couple of years because it goes against the truth of a lot of others around me oftentimes. And I think I'm not the only one. I know so many people who've had strife with families and broken apart or been ostracized from communities. And so, yeah, I know I'm not the only one that's really grappling with finding their true north or what's important to them. And so my val my values have just become so solidified and who I am. And so that was, that'd be number one. And what I've learned about the world, yeah, I guess it's a good question. Um, I've learned that, yeah, I, through sharing my truth, that there is a community that feels exactly the way, same way I do about their truth and their autonomy and sovereignty and connection to their body that, yeah, I've, I've just, I think being so clear about who I am has just drawn these like really special, amazing humans towards me. And so being authentic and being who I am has just brought this whole new crew towards, towards me, towards my studio, towards my career and blossom some new friendships. So I, yeah, I've just learned that being authentic will bring you your people and your crew and, and from such a deep place and not, I think I, I think I was a yes person a lot before and now it's like, even with my clients, who I work with, who I choose to work with, the ethics that they carry as a company, the values that they have as people, that's a big reason I do or do not work with some people. And so it's just, yeah, COVID has really reinstilled those values in me and made me really proud of them um, at the expense of losing some clients or at the expense of losing some friends. But it's kind of, yeah, without going into the nitty gritty, that's like the high level of what what's happened for me in the last couple of years but it's been a roller coaster mm -hmm, <laughs> it's been mm -hmm. really hard um it's been really hard for everyone uh but yeah the benefit of it is just like I'm so secure in in my values and who I am mm. yeah and it's a lot for new creative babies too you've got something that you're working on I don't know how much you want to chat about it but some yeah. percolating things right yeah some percolating things yeah just I guess over the past 10 years I've been collecting a lot, collecting information, collecting connections from travel, collecting beautiful things and curating this list of epic humans and organizations from around the world or places to visit. And I, for 10 years, maybe longer, maybe 15, kept track of it through documents. So like I have documentation of pretty much every single thing that's ever inspired me, whether it's a thing, a quote, a person, who they are, their number. And so I'm kind of putting it all together right now in a few different projects. One will be a curated website that's just all the things I love called Nowhere, and it's coming this year. Um, and then I'm not sure if this is going to manifest this year, but maybe if I stated it, it will. But um, back to entrepreneurship and helping others, my favorite thing about photography has been mentorship and helping others succeed in their businesses. I know I was so shy and scared to ask people like business advice or technical advice. And everyone said, oh, Vancouver's so clicky and you can't get information out of people. But I would just ask. And I felt there was um, a timidness around sharing really practical information about how to succeed in our industry. And so over the years, I've created a Facebook group 
where photographers can come and share information. And and then I realized I really kind of want to turn this into a course, like a collaborative course where I can help educate people. And it will be based on the mentorship sessions I have had because there's a common thread of what people want to know. And a lot of them are very technically astute, but it's like, how did you start? Or how did you get Mm. your brand out there? How do you get your clients? And they all end up asking the same questions and they're not generally 20% of the mentorship sessions are about technical questions. And then 80% is like, how do I get over this hurdle of myself? And so I want to build a little bit of a course that brings together the education of how to use the camera with the business acumen that you might need Mm. yeah to build up your yeah just build up your confidence and so I'm working on that right now I have it all laid out but we'll see how long it takes to get out there yes yes (laughs) my my word of the year is focus which (laughs) really needs to happen because I have my hand in a hundred different cookie pots at every every given time and so I really want to focus and execute on some of these projects so Mm, so saying them into the universe yes yes well I'm excited to see them come out into the universe fully Um, my final question is the question I ask everyone with what it is you do what is it that you want to leave behind in the world Hmm. very good question Um, oh my god I think inspiration and what the best feedback that I get from my imagery is that it made people feel something and and going back to Africa like it I I exercised that feedback loop there when people could feel emotion from my images and so I think I just want to take people out of their regular day and have them feel something and be inspired and so right now that translates to photography but as a legacy, I think I want my photos to live on. And I, I just, I want the projects that I'm creating this year to just have inspired people to be bigger and take up more space. I think, I think we've become a bit timid with our goals and manifestations. And that's my big thing in the last year was that I was playing too small. I just want to inspire people to play bigger and take mm. up more space in this world. And I think there's been this guilt around around that, around success and taking up space. And I'm reclaiming that. <laughs> and mm. I don't think it's bad to want to succeed and be big and inspire others. And so that's that's like what I want my legacy to be. And I, I, w- I hope that, yeah, I hope people feel inspired by my story to, to take that on for themselves. But yeah, I could go on and on and on <laughs> with that one. That's a fun one. Oh, well, thank you for such a, a beautiful message and reminder and for sharing your soul in this yeah. conversation. And uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I want to ask you questions oh. now. <laughs> Turn the tables. <laughs> Maybe one me. day. Maybe, Maybe one, one day. day. Okay, one day. <laughs> Recorded. We could do this offline, but yeah. <laughs> but thank you for being here, and uh, thank, thank you for you. being you. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful that you, yeah, created this platform for me to tell my story and share about my family. It's super important to me. So love Boris, you. Of course. Much you. love. <laughs> 
If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes with Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.